in this space because you come to meet with your children. And Lord, we ask that you would speak to us now from your word, that our hearts would be moved, that our minds would be renewed, that we might see you were right and give you praise. Lord, be with us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. I wonder what the biggest uh, sort of public gathering is that you've ever been at. I don't know if you've been at Times Square at New Year's or perhaps some concert. Or I know for me, the, the largest public gathering I've ever been at is when I go to a sporting event of one form or another. And if you've been, you, you know what it's like. You're on the way to the baseball game or FedEx Field or, or somewhere like that. And there's just this huge crowd that it really takes a kind of swell down the road. And everyone starts to walk on the road. Cars are, you know, either can't make it or are entirely blocked off. And there's this great energy and atmosphere that comes with being in such a large group of people. Verse 20 of 1 Kings 18 introduces us to such a scene as thousands of people make their way to Mount Carmel for the big game, the showdown between Baal, the God that is being worshipped in Israel, and the Lord who should be being worshipped in Israel. It's about to take place at Mount Carmel. The contest starts as Elijah addresses the crowd in verse 21. How long, he says, how long will you go limping between two opinions? In the red corner, there is Baal, and there is lots of reasons to follow Baal in this day and age. First of all, Baal had royal sanction. You remember King Ahab and his wife Jezebel were followers of Baal, and power tends to have influence. It is wise and expedient to align your preferences with those of the elite, a motivation to follow Baal. Secondly, Baal also had some history and tradition on his side. It's hard for us as we jump into this text, much of it sounds so foreign, but Baal had been worshipped in one form or another and in one region or another for hundreds of years. And so Baal worship had an air of legitimacy. It was not some crazy new cult motivation to follow Baal. Thirdly, Baal also had great relevance to the everyday lives of the people. Why? Because Baal was the fertility god. They believed that Baal gave fertility to humans, but they also believed that he was the god of the skies, the one who could send rain, that the land might be fertile. And so the existential itch was scratched by this god. He had relevance to day-to-day life. In the blue corner then, there is God, there is the Lord, and he is not the one that you want standing across the ring from you. And despite all the reasons to follow Baal, Elijah goes with God because he knows three key things. First of all, he knows that the real issue, the real question here isn't expediency, but is truth. Look with me at verse 21 again. If the Lord is God, follow him, but if Baal, then follow him. It's not about what's expedient, it's about what's right. It's not about what's traditional, it's about what's true. Not about what's convenient, but about what is correct. More than this, Elijah knows that once you have discerned who the true God is, secondly, you must then follow that God. Again, verse 21, if the Lord is God, then follow him. 
But if Baal is, then go follow him. In other words, there needs to be a connection between your theology and your practice, a connection between what you believe and how you live. And if you believe in the Lord, that should change your actions. We have been given an active grace. The third thing that makes Elijah align with the Lord is that he knows, as one commentator says, that despite the opposition, God plus one always equals a majority. God plus one always equals a majority. So in the red corner, there's Baal. In the blue corner, there's God. And on the sidelines, there's all the people. There's all of us. Um, We read in verse 21 that they do not answer him a word. They do not answer him a word. This, I imagine, drove Elijah crazy. because He's an active, dynamic guy, and he shows up here, and he throws down the gauntlet, and he says, this is the way it's going to be. Either pick one or pick the other. You know, you know don't keep remaining planted in midair. Choose your path. Stop straddling the fence. And they just look at him, you know, like he's issued a really dull office memo. They, they have no response for him. And so you can see Elijah with his sort of active personality has just had enough of this wishy-washy approach and so he lays down the challenge in verses 23, uh, 22 through 24. Right, this is what we're going to do. Someone go fetch two bulls. You pick the one you want, I'll pick the one you didn't want. And then let's both prepare an altar and let's pre- cut the bulls up and we'll lay the pieces on the altars but we won't set fire to them. And then we'll both go and pray. You pray to your God. I'll pray to my God, whichever God answers by fire, that God wins. That God wins. The people respond (laughs) somewhat humorously uh, when you know the whole story in verse 24 uh, by loving the idea. It is well spoken, they say. This verse is, we can, you know, understand it a little more when we remember that uh, Elijah has challenged them to see which God will send fire from the heavens, and Baal, they believed, is the one who controlled the heavens. So he, Baal is the one who controls uh, the rain and controls the thunder and controls the lightning. So Elijah is, is really challenging Baal to a home game. If you can do anything, you should be able to do this, and that's why the people agree. And it's into that context, then, that the battle commences, the games begin. How are we to decide which God is the true God? This is a question that we all face as well. Elijah's words resonate with us so deeply because we live in a day and an age that is so squeamish, so uncomfortable with exclusive truth claims. We live uh, with the bumper sticker coexist. I hate that bumper sticker. I hate that bumper sticker, and do you know what? Our Muslim, our Muslim neighbors hate it too. Because this idea of being many paths up the mountain is incredibly condescending to the main religions of this world. Because we know that our claims compete, that our religions are not the same, that they are contradictory, in fact. And so it's possible that we might all be wrong, but it's not possible that we're all going to be right. We too live in a day and an age when we must pick our God. How do you decide which God is false and which God is true? The Bible this morning gives us an interesting answer. First of all, it tells us how you can spot a false God. The Bible says you can spot a false God because false gods make you perform for them. 
False gods, the Bible says, make you perform for them. We see this in verses 25 through 29. Let's pick up in, actually in verse 26, where we see the red corner of Baal going to work. They go and they get their bull and they prepare it and they cut it up and they do all the gruesome stuff that's involved in that process and they lay it on the altar and then they begin to pray. And they call upon their God from morning until lunchtime. And they do so with a great vigor. Round and round the altar they go, doing their strange and mystic dance, repeating this monotonous chant, O Baal, answer us. O Baal, answer us. Round and round and round, minute after minute, hour after hour. Verse 27 is hilarious. At lunchtime, Elijah comes along and he's eating a sandwich and he looks at them and he starts to just mock the absurdity and futility of their efforts in cutting, cutting tones. Shout louder, he says, because surely Baal is a god. Shout louder. So, you know, he's real. You just need to make a little more noise. Maybe, maybe he's thinking. Maybe he is somewhere meditating in lotus position and just needs you to speak a little louder. Maybe he's in the bathroom. The less I say about that, the better. <laughs> Maybe he's traveling. You know, he's up in the air, so he doesn't have his cell phone off and I'm on, and I'm sure when he lands, he'll call you right back. Or, or maybe he's asleep. You need to rap a little harder on that bedroom door. Sarcasm, of course, can be dangerous, but it is fully warranted for those who have shown such contempt for God. Psalm 2 verse 4, the one enthroned in heaven laughs. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them all. Verse 28, things take a little bit of a darker turn as the prophets of Baal try harder for their God and they perform with exuberance. First of all, we read that they cry louder. They cry louder. They don't have a relational God. They don't have a reasonable God. So all they can do is say the same thing louder. Bring the same message to God again. And then we read that they cut themselves. They resort to the sword and uh, to um, uh, cutting themselves, slashing and uh, scourging away, believing that their God will be satisfied or or mollified with this performance. And then they keep it up, verse 29. Keep it up for the rest of the afternoon. Round and round they go, ranting and raving, sweating and bleeding. Sad result comes in verse 29. There was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. There is no spark. There is no ember. There is no flame. Why do they do all of this? Because they believe that their God can be won over by their performance. They believe that their God wants them to perform for them. And if they perform hard enough, he will answer. Their idol, their God, was dictating their behavior. Now we've learned already as we've worked our way through this series to be very careful when we see people in the text doing foolish things because that is likely designed to point out our own folly. And in this regard, again, we see that it is the case. We may not worship Baal, and as we look at this text, we may think that it is a very backward way of living your life, but we ourselves are people who find that our idols dictate our behavior. More polished idols, for sure. More culturally acceptable idols, perhaps. 
But let me give you three examples of how this works in our own lives, how our idols control our behavior. First of all, how many of us find that we perform for the idol of insecurity? How many of us are insecure and live our lives in such a way that will minister to that insecurity? Madonna is my favorite example of this, and she just has great self-insight in this quote. I have an iron will, she says, and all of my will has always been to conquer some horrible feeling of inadequacy. I push past one spell of it and discover myself to be a special human being, and then I get to another stage and I think I'm mediocre and uninteresting again and again. My drive in life is from this horrible fear of being mediocre, and it's always pushing me and pushing me. And even though I've become somebody, I still need to prove that I'm somebody. My struggle has never ended, and it probably never will. Idol of insecurity, making her perform, making her obsess about her physical appearance, obsess about reinventing her work, obsess about being found acceptable, obsess about her reputation. How many of us do the same thing? Maybe not to the same degree, but in the same way. Driven by our insecurities, crying out, dancing, cutting ourselves, because this God has told us to live in such a way. Perhaps it's not uh, insecurity, second example. Perhaps it's more a fear of failure. How often does the idol of failure control your actions? Sebastian Coe was the world record-holding middle-distance runner in the 1980s. He reflected on his entrance to the 1,500-meter final at the Moscow Olympics and said, I didn't have any alternative but to win. I was driven by fear, fear of repeating my own failure. What determines the limit of an athlete's performance is the inner conflict about your doubt and your abilities. This fear of failure can be limiting or uplifting. For him, this idol of failure made him perform, made him train his body and work inordinately hard, made him push his mind, made him do all that he could so that he would not be viewed as a failure. How often in our lives is it the same way? Are we concerned about something that might go wrong and do all that we can to ensure that thing doesn't happen? Performing for our our idol, dancing, crying out, cutting ourselves to appease. Perhaps it's not insecurity, perhaps it's not failure, perhaps it's the other side of the coin. How many of us find that we are driven by the idol of success? Who saw the Lance Armstrong thing? Actually, put a hand up if you did. First service didn't know if I was being serious or not. Yeah. Okay, interesting. Um, it's like the first time in my life that having the Oprah Winfrey network paid off big, right? <laughs> <laughs> it was a very interesting interview that I'm still processing through, but he made this one statement. My ruthless desire to win at all costs served me well on a bike, but the level it went to, for whatever reason, is a flaw. That desire, that attitude, that arrogance, this drive for success that pushed him, yes, to train hard, but also to take illegal substances and then to cover his tracks. Driven because he just 
had to get those victories. How many of us are the same way? Our kids have to make it to a certain stage, a certain school. We have to make a certain deal, a certain agreement. We have to get to a certain standing, have a certain house, have the certain car. We just have these things in our lives that we feel we must have. And until we get them, there's a sense that something is missing. How many of us are driven by this? And how many of us, again, maybe not to Lance Armstrong's extent, but have you ever covered up your own tracks so you wouldn't get caught doing something wrong? Not a person in this room would claim that they have not. If we look at our own hearts, we realize that the difference between us and the prophets of Baal um, is, is time and circumstance. They were driven by their God. We are driven by ours. How do you know a false God? Because false gods make you perform for them. And we all get caught up in this from time to time. Secondly, how do you know the true God? How do you know the true God, and how does that provide the antidote to the false God? Well, the text answers that you know a false God because false gods make you perform for them, but you know the true God because the true God performs for you. The true God performs for you, verses 30 through 38. Now, understand, when I say perform, we're not thinking of God as our genie in a bottle who is in there excited so that we'll rub the lamp and he can come out and do our bidding. What I mean is that our God performs remarkable deeds to bring his children home. God performs remarkable deeds to bring his children home. Let's look at the text and see how we see this. First of all, verse 30, Elijah draws the people to him. It's his turn now and he wants the people to be close because he wants everyone to see what he's doing. He doesn't want them to think that David Copperfield is hiding and that this is all going to be an illusion or a trick. He wants them to know that what is happening now is of the Lord. Verses 31 and 32, Elijah digs a deep a trench, which is hard work in the middle of the day. And then he builds an altar. 33 through 35, he prepares the sacrifice and he lays the sacrifice upon the altar. And then, interestingly, has the entire thing drenched with water. Has the entire thing absolutely soaked with water. Commentators are interesting on this point because they suggest that you know, this is a time of drought in Israel and so water was probably not readily accessible. But Mount Carmel, where all this takes place, is right beside the Mediterranean Sea. And so they would have been able to walk down the slopes, fill their jars, walk back up the slopes, pour the water out. They do that once. Elijah says, thanks guys, do it for me one more time. They trek back down the hill, they fill their jars up, they sweat back up the hill in the heat of the afternoon, pour it on the altar again, and can just tell by looking at his face that he's going to ask him to do it again. And so back down they go, fill their jars up the hill, so that the whole thing is just a soggy mess, just drenched with water. And then, central verses in our text, verses 36 and 37 where Elijah prays, and and note the contrast to the activity of the prophets of Baal. O Lord God of Abraham, of Isaac and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant, and that I have done all these things at your word. You see, this isn't a game that I came up with. This is something that the Lord has told me to do. Answer me, O Lord, answer me. Why? That this people may know that you, O Lord, are God, 
and that you have turned their hearts back. Short, simple, succinct of prayer. Now, the division between verse 37 and verse 38 would have been a really dramatic one. You know, it kind of flows on our page, but, but imagine the scene. The, the prophets are all there, and they're bleeding and sweating, and they've been ob- unable to make this happen. Elijah is standing by, and he's just prayed this earnest prayer. All the people are gathered, and the people are they're maybe a little bit bored. They've been there all day, and all they've seen is some guys do a strange dance around an altar. And you can imagine that as hour became hour and hour, and they were there for six hours or more before Elijah stands up, they're not sure if there's going to be any action. They're not sure what to expect. Then this prophet prays, and the fire comes, descends from heaven, and consumes everything. It's interesting to note that this has happened before. The first time this happened was in Leviticus chapter 9 at the inauguration of the tabernacle. The Lord sent fire from heaven to show that he uh, found their sacrifices acceptable. Then in First Chronicles 21 at the inauguration of the temple, the Lord sends fire again to show that he finds their sacrifices acceptable. At these major liturgical moments, these major moments in the worship of the people, the Lord sends fire to show that he finds their worship acceptable. And so he does so again here. The power of it is staggering. We read that it consumes the offering. We expect that. It consumes the wood. We might expect that too. But it consumes the stones. Think of the inferno that must have been sent in order for the stones themselves to have been burnt up. Consumes the stones, the dust, the water, in the trench. Everyone stands back, and to be a fly on the tent would have been amazing. There's just this huge charred area, like it's a meteor has hit. And, you know, the prophets are standing there looking agape, and Elijah's standing there. I, I don't know what he was thinking. And the, the crowd's all looking on in this intense moment of uh, drama. What's the point of it all? The point of it all is, is beautiful. The point isn't man, God can do some cool stuff. And he can. And I love his imagination. He chooses to. He chooses to do things in a very engaging way. But that's not the point of this scene, the point of this account. The point of this account is, of course, grace. Why does Elijah pray this prayer? Look at verse 37 with me. Elijah prays, that the Lord will answer so that the people will know that he is God and so that the people will know that God is turning their hearts back to him. That God is turning their hearts back to him. And so, verse 39, they fall on their faces and worship. The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. God is performing remarkable feats to secure the hearts of his people and to bring them home. That's the point of this text. How does that apply to us? How has God performed for us? Let me answer with another contrast. We read that uh, the false gods want us to perform for them and the true God performs for us. We saw that the false gods required the people to appease them, to elicit the desired response by resorting to the sword and to the lance and to slashing themselves so that blood would flow from their bodies. The false gods want them to bleed. 
the Lord actually prohibits the cutting of our bodies in worship. Deuteronomy 14 verse 1, the Lord says, uh, specifically forbids us uh, from cutting ourselves in worship. Why? I love this passage. Because false gods make you bleed for them, and the true God bleeds for you. False gods make you bleed for them, but the true God is the one who bleeds for you. And so the sacrifice that we see unfolding on Mount Carmel here just foreshadows the sacrifice that will come at Mount Calvary. And the sacrifice that is consumed by uh, the fire of heaven just is a foreshadow of how uh, the sacrifice of Christ will be consumed upon the cross. And that, that fire that comes down on Carmel is just a foreshadow of the sun that will come down on Calvary. And so he hangs and he dies. He performs for us. He bleeds for us so that we might find forgiveness and a different kind of flame. Then he rose and he's alive forevermore. And you know what? To my shame, I forgot to say that in the first service. Never let your preacher leave Jesus on the cross. Okay? That's why he's not there. Okay? That's why he's not there. Because we don't worship a crucified Savior, we worship the crucified risen Savior. And we're here to celebrate today that fact. He's alive forevermore. And so we can come to him. We can come to him at Mount Calvary and we can find the rest and forgiveness that our souls need there. We can find that he has performed for us, that he has bled for us. So your guilt and the shame and whatever is holding you back from relationship with him has been taken away by him for you. This is the message of the gospel. False gods make you perform for them. The true God performs for you. False gods make you bleed for them. The true God bleeds for you. That's what happens in this big game. Sometimes the big game is disappointing. You know, you wait with anticipation for the Super Bowl and it turns out the divisional games were much better. Uh, or you wait for the World Cup and it turns out you know, the qualifiers were much better. Uh, sometimes the big game disappoints. Um, big game, big stage, God never disappoints. He has come and he has bled for us. Let's pray. Father, this is a match that was well worth seeing seeing how you come to perform for your people remarkable deeds to turn our hearts to you. And Lord, we pray that as we have seen Carmel, we will also see Calvary. We will see that you have acted, you have performed to bring our hearts home. And so, Lord, we return to you. In the quietness of our hearts, in the name of Jesus, we come asking that you would forgive us for our sins and that we would walk with you today.
Father, in your gospel there is rest, and we are grateful to receive it. In Jesus' perfect and matchless name, amen. Friends, let's stand together and sing our song of sending Isaiah 43.